Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Over the past 20 years, Anshul Pfeffer has distinguished himself for his reporting, his researching, and his prognostication. He writes now at Israel's most prestigious paper, Haaretz, where he covers Israel's military, Jewish news, and international affairs. This year, he published Bibi, The Turbulent Life and Times of Benjamin Netanyahu, a critically acclaimed, best-selling biography of Israel's prime minister. He joined us at AJC Passport to discuss the latest news about Gaza and also to pull back the curtain on Benjamin Netanyahu. Anshul, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Sophie. Now, does this ceasefire in Gaza represent progress of some kind? Probably not toward peace, but toward a more stable, quiet, toward any kind of reconstruction of Gaza? Or is it just a return to a fragile and untenable status quo? Well, as of uh, Thursday afternoon, Israel time, when we're speaking, we don't actually have a ceasefire yet. We're still uh, waiting for all the all the various players to uh, signal their agreement. And the main uh, the main uh, party which is not yet in agreement is the Palestinian Authority, which technically is important because of uh, because of the fact that it uh, transfers a lot of the payment to Gaza. It's, uh, and as, as you know, the Palestinian Authority is controlled by Fatah, which is the rival of Hamas, which, which controls Gaza. So we don't yet have a ceasefire in place. What we do have is in principle an agreement between Hamas and Israel, brokers through the Egyptian intelligence agency, to a framework of a ceasefire which is expected to last for about a year. And uh, that in itself is progress, and we've seen over the last few days uh, less uh, violence, less confrontation on the on the borders of Gaza. We haven't seen the total absence of it. The, the protests on Friday and Israel's response to those protests is still ongoing. But it's progress in the fact that we've seen less violence, and there is a framework that we know that the, that the main sides, which are Israel and Hamas, have agreed to. We've heard that future stages of this potential deal would include some really dramatic steps that would ease the blockade around Gaza, potentially even lead to the opening of a seaport and an airport to serve that enclave while still providing, of course, for Israel's security needs. Do you think that that kind of thing is seriously in the offing? And could this Israeli government sell such a deal to its voters? Well, the- You've mentioned uh, a number of elements, and each of these elements have to sort of have to be agreed upon separately. So the main changes in uh, in the closure of Gaza could be in the offing, uh, as you mentioned, the seaport and other kinds of access and exit from Gaza are not yet on the table. We're still talking about just right now a return to the status quo of post Operation Protective Measure 2014 which basically means more cargo going through the crossing and the Rafah crossing, which Egypt controls, being open more frequently, and more uh, more areas of fishermen of Gaza can fish in off, off the coast. But the big things, the seaport, perhaps potentially even air, an air link at some stage, and a major rebuilding of, uh, of, of Gaza infrastructure, which will take a lot of uh, materials going in and experts and people coming in and out, and so on, 
that's not yet part of this ceasefire agreement. This ceasefire agreement is partly to be able to reach a stage where that can be talked about. And one of the problems with reaching that stage is the fact that there's another entire issue on the table, which is the prisoners, uh, two Israeli citizens who are being held in Gaza, the bodies of two IDF soldiers, which are being held by Hamas as well. And on the, on the other hand, Hamas's demands for Israel will uh, release Palestinian prisoners. So those two things will somehow have to happen either in tandem or, first of all, there has to be some kind of prisoner deal. And that is crucial for what you asked about whether the Israeli government can sell this to the voters. Because right now, the ceasefire in itself is not popular with the right wing in Israel. According to a recent poll, 41% of the good voters are against the unofficial uh, official ceasefire. And partly because there's a demand that the, the bodies of the two soldiers and the two civilians will be returned to Israel as part of any deal. Recently, we've heard all this chatter coming out of Washington about Trump's ultimate deal perhaps not being an ultimate deal after all, or maybe he has some grand plan that he's announcing at the UN General Assembly this fall. A a few different kind of contradictory um, or seemingly contradictory updates about that. But but one of the things we've heard is that actually rather than focus on a overarching peace agreement between Israelis and Palestinians, uh, one first step at least would be to focus on the reconstruction of Gaza. And in fact, that's something that many people have been calling for when we had former U.S. ambassador to Israel, Dan Shapiro, on this podcast. He said that he would be particularly wary of any attempt to try to strike a grand deal that he worried would be destined to fail and would only drive the two sides further apart. Um, So with Gaza reconstruction in mind, what does Gaza, you know, you haven't been there in recent years, I would imagine, being an Israeli citizen. Uh, but what does Gaza look like? What is the status of Gaza now? What does it need in order to be reconstructed? And how pressing is that reconstruction? Well, Gaza has been described as an open-air prison, and a lot of Israelis don't like to hear the description, but essentially we're talking about two million people living in a, on, a, on, a, on a short, narrow strip of coast who can't, very, very few of them are allowed to leave. So essentially, it is a a detention center for two million people. It's their home, but they can't leave. And the the fact that no major uh, resources are going in means that the infrastructure there, which has never been anything wonderful and has been damaged by by repeated uh, rounds of fighting, is crumbling, and the the sewer system there, and uh, water, and electricity, and so on. Of the supply is is quite tenuous. So, that, so this, you know, this is a situation which is right now needs to be dealt with as soon as possible. And at the same time, you know, we have uh, this stat- you know, the, the diplomatic process is standing. There's been no direct negotiation between the Israeli government and the Palestinian Authority for years now. Basically, for about uh, at this point, we're talking about almost five years, which is, there's been nothing going on, and all the talk of a, of a grand deal, uh, or the Palestinians call it dismissively, the deal of the century, is talk which has been going on for, you know, from the from the day after Donald Trump was elected. He, gave, he spoke about it already in his very first interview that he gave to the Wall Street Journal when he was still president-elect, and he's he's been in office now for 20 months, and this this talk of a deal, this you know, all these meetings and the journeys back and forth by Jared Kushner and Greenblatt. And none of that seems very realistic when the Palestinian side simply isn't talking to the Americans. So 
totally, I totally agree with the Dan Shapiro you just quoted. It's almost destined to fail because because you can't sell a deal which one side isn't even going to talk to you about. At the same time, the issue of Gaza is happening, and and there is talk, and there's a lot of talk is happening behind the scenes, whether in Cairo through Egyptian intermediaries, uh, secret meetings between Israelis and Qatari and Egyptian officials, and so on, and and there is some involvement by the Trump administration. So the issue of Gaza is being dealt with. I wouldn't say it's being dealt with in the best way or the fastest way possible, but it's being dealt with and we're slowly beginning to see a situation emerging where it is actually working through intermediaries with Hamas in many ways, while with the, with the Fatah dominated passing authority, which is officially is open to dealing with, there is nothing but security coordination. There's no political engagement and no talk of any kind of an agreement. So yes, it's, it's ironic that there seems to be some kind of progress with Gaza under Hamas, and no real progress with the West Bank under Fatah and the PA. Recently, there's been chatter about a possible early election in Israel. You just wrote a fascinating column about a rabbi, Rabbi Yaakov Aryeh Alter, who is uh, pulling some strings in this conversation. Can you tell us about him? Well, Rabbi Alter, who is the Gera Rebbe, or the rabbi who is the leader of Gur, which is the, probably the largest and most influential Catholic court in Israel and in one of one of the largest in the world uh, is probably the you could say the senior member of the council of Torah sages which is the council of rabbis which uh, directs the orthodox uh, politicians and he is right now seems to be probably the most uh, steadfast opponent to the to the new uh, law on drafting yeshiva students to the army now that law has to be passed very soon, because there's a high court ruling, which has, has, which has basically invalidated the previous law as unconstitutional, and the, de- the deadline now to, for a new law is November. If 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 that rabbi says no, all the rest of the rabbis are going to basically stand behind him, and there will be the, the, the yeah, we simply won't have a, a coalition because they will say, you know, if you vote for this law, we'll leave the coalition. And then there's no government tomorrow, and there have to be early elections in Israel. So, in many ways, uh, Rabbi Yaakov Alter is the guy who's going to decide when Israel uh, goes to polls. There's one caveat to that, in that uh, a lot of people within Likud suspect that now is very happy to go to an early election because he wants to preempt any, any possible decision by the Attorney General to indict him in, in uh, three criminal cases. So for his point of view, it's very convenient now to have a rabbi who's forcing him to, who's sort of ostensibly forcing him to go to early elections. Anshul, you have written the authoritative biography of Prime Minister Netanyahu. It's called Bibi, The Turbulent Life and Times of Benjamin Netanyahu. And, and everyone should go out and, and buy a copy or, or buy several, give them to friends as gifts. What inspired you to write this mid-career biography of the Prime Minister? Well, you know, mid-career for Netanyahu could be at any time. But... Um, <laughs> I think you know, if if you go into any serious book uh, store in the U.S., you'll find about twenty books about every president on average in in, in the political or historical section. And Netanyahu has been around in, in Israeli uh, I and mean, in global public life since the early 1980s. 
And to this day, there have only been three or four biographies. So I, I thought that there was room for a biography that would be written in English and not one uh, translated from Hebrew, but one written for, a, for an international audience. And since I've been a journalist for over 20 years, Netanyahu has dominated uh, politics in all this time. It, for me, he's the biggest figure and the, you know, the most interesting uh, character for me to tackle in the book. So it was obviously an ambition of mine to write a book like that for many years. So I'm not going to ask you to give too much away, but one thing that there's a lot of speculation about, seemingly constantly, Bibi is kind of this hard figure to parse. Does Prime Minister Netanyahu have an ideology? I think he's deeply ideological. Netanyahu has an ideology that not only does he have an ideology, but he wrote an entire book called Place Among the Nations uh, 25 years ago, setting out that ideology, and if you read the book today, and it's fascinating, I mean, read my book first because I explain what he says there in the book and I give a bit of context. But anybody who reads that book today, 25 years after it was published, will see that Netanyahu has set about in the quarter of a century thing, of which he's, half of that time he's been the Prime Minister of Israel. He set about implementing the, the principles in that book, and the principles of that book are very clear. The, the Palestinian issue is not a real issue. Netanyahu dismisses it as, as an invented issue. And the real issue to Netanyahu is Israel's uh, conflict, Israel's struggle against radical Islam and, and uh, Arab, the, the entire Arab world around Israel not being prepared to accept the presence of the Jewish state. And therefore, Israel must never concede both territory or in principle, it should always remain strong until the Arabs finally uh, understand that they will never get rid of Israel, understand that they have to make peace with Israel's presence and make peace with Israel. And if you look at the way Netanyahu has been, uh, and not, not just listen to everything he's said over 25 years, because a lot of things he's said, he's, he's had to be pragmatic, and especially during the Obama era, and make a show of, uh, of supporting the two-state solution, which he, which he doesn't really support. But he, you know, in his policy, he is, he's stuck to the principles of that book pretty much throughout. And certainly now, uh, in the Donald Trump era, and when... Some of the what we usually call moderate Arab states are beginning to kind of crawl away from the Palestinian issue and less, you know, perhaps pay lip service to it. But they're talking to Israel behind the scenes and they have joint interests with Israel, mainly against Iran. We're seeing a lot of what Netanyahu said would happen 25 years ago. We're seeing some of that happening now, not seeing it the whole picture. He predicted the Palestinians would also give up. The Palestinians haven't given up, and I, I doubt they will. But we are seeing at least some of Netanyahu's predictions come to life right now in the Middle East around us. What would you say is the biggest difference between Netanyahu's public persona and what you learned about him while you were doing this deep dive researching him? I have to say that Netanyahu is one of the politicians who have relatively little distance between the public and the personal. I mean, I, I can't claim to have had thousands of conversations with Netanyahu, but I've had a few, and obviously spoken to other people who, many other people who have, spoke, have sat with him in, in closed rooms. And Netanyahu is very much uh, a person who believes the message that he gives out. Obviously, the message is crafted for public consumption. What Netanyahu believes inside, what Netanyahu says inside, is very similar to what he says outside. He, he, he convinces, you know, he's not one of those politicians who says something and, and then in another room will tell you, well, actually, you know, I don't really think that, but I've just said it because I have to say it. And now really believes what he says. And there's not that much of a difference between the, the public and the, and the personal in his case. 
Angel, last question, and uh, I, I know political prognostication can make fools of us all, but uh, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Uh, there will be an election in Israel sometime between now and November 2019. Um, will someone other than Benjamin Netanyahu be prime minister at the end of that election? I think there's a good chance that yes, but it may not have anything to do with the election. It could well have something to do with decisions of, uh, of the Attorney General and of the decisions of some of Netanyahu's coalition partners and perhaps even Likud colleagues who will at some stage decide that he's had his, uh, he's had his time and Israel can't uh, uh, carry on in the case that he's indicted. There's no precedent for a prime minister to carry on serving under an indictment and while, while going on trial. And I wouldn't be surprised if some of the people who may seem closer to Netanyahu in today's coalition will realize that at some stage. But like you said, it's political propagation. <laughs> Anything could be, uh, <laughs> he could be prime minister for another 10 years. That's possible as well. <laughs> well, at some point in the future, we certainly look forward to having you back on to help us make sense of, uh, of the news around Netanyahu and, and other news out of Israel. Thank you so much, Anshul, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has enjoyed a huge boom in his country's economy over the past decade. He has ridden the popularity economic growth provides to consolidate his power over the military, the judiciary, and even the country's central bank. Now, years of debt-fueled growth are catching up to Turkey, and a growing diplomatic and economic trade dispute with the United States isn't helping. As the lira, Turkey's currency, crashes in value against the dollar, the country is also facing U.S. sanctions over its refusal to release a jailed American pastor. Joining us now to talk Turkey is Dr. Henri Barki. Henri has previously served at the State Department and as the Middle East Program Director at Princeton's Woodrow Wilson Center. As you'll hear, he has also become, through no fault of his own, an enemy of President Erdogan. Henri, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Turkey has been in the news a lot lately. And before we can understand why, I think we need to understand Turkey and especially the man who leads it, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. What do people need to know about Erdogan? What are the basics? Well, Erdogan came into power in 2003 um, as a reformer. I mean, his party had uh, won a majority in parliament the year before. And... um, even though he had come up through the ranks in a hardcore Islamist party, uh, he essentially cut um, a reformist uh, line, a reformist position, and he also benefited from the improvement in the Turkish, Turkish and global economy in the early 2000s. And you saw that at the beginning, Turkey made enormous efforts to improve is its economic industrial posture, but also its reputation around the world. Uh, he pushed for democratization, improved relations with uh, Europe. But you know, it turns out that he was doing a great deal of these things because uh, he was always afraid of the Turkish military, which took a very dim view of his past, his Islamist past, his... Uh, the Turkish military was very wary that Erdogan was um, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And so he, by 
getting close to the United States and also to Europe, he kind of tried to insulate himself. But there's no question that Turkey did exceedingly well between 2003 and 2008-9. Um, but it's after that that you see a change, a gradual change in Erdogan to the point where we are today, where he has not only changed the Turkish political system from a parliamentary system to a one-person presidential system where all powers are concentrated in his person and his person only. There is no separation of powers. He controls the judiciary, he controls the parliament, uh, the legislature, legislature, in other words. Uh, he controls the, the financial mechanisms. Everything is under his, uh, his thumb. So it's hard to think of Turkey today as... Um, a democracy which he had aspired or he had said he was trying to build, and it has become an illiberal society, a liberal state. And um, as he has concentrated power um, in his in his hands, he also has become kind of very combative. He has a problem in the sense that because the buck stops with him, because ultimately. He has no one to blame in Turkey but himself because he has controlled all the levers of power since 2003. Uh, if anything goes wrong, if anything, um, he then ends up blaming others. And so we'll get to what's we'll get to what's going wrong in just a moment because I I, I wanna I wanna I wanna talk about that financial crisis. But just to stay on on Erdogan the man for a moment, those of us who remember reading the news about him about Turkey over the past what's it been twelve years, you know, remember this kind of Erdogan the reformer that image that you described. And now certainly he has moved toward much more Islamist rhetoric. And so the question is, uh, you know, you mentioned that the military once regarded him as a wolf in sheep's clothing. Was he always a wolf in sheep's clothing, or has he now assumed the garb, uh, the rhetoric of Islamism for political expediency? I think the answer is not an easy one, in the sense that he was both a wolf in sheep's clothing, as well as um, he would have attacked differently had Turkey had a decent opposition had the military did not make the mistakes they did, and I will explain that in a minute. Uh, and I think his Islamism is that we see today is not kind of politically convenient. It is genuinely, he believes that. I mean, he's, he always was. I mean, even when he was a reformer, you could see it when he, he always uttered things that show that he, he's a deeply religious person. I, and I, in some ways, I don't see him as any different than some of our very religious leaders. Maybe Mike Pence is, is not that different from him. <laughs> so I, we have to be careful about Islamism. Islamism is, is genuine. It's fed uh, by a significant portion, not all, not even a majority of the Turkish public, maybe, but a significant element. And but Erdogan is in power now. Look, if if Turkey had a decent opposition that that kept him honest, that challenged him, right? He has won every single election, every single contest since 2002, effectively. Now the last few were. Uh, he 
cheated. I mean, the referendum in 2017 and this last election in June of, uh, of 2018 were clearly problematic. He probably, I mean, he has a genuine he has genuine support in the country, but he may not have had the 51%, or, uh, and he had to essentially cheat his way through that. But, but look, there's also a very important event that kind of crystallized uh, and made all this possible, and this is the failed coup attempt of Ju- uh, July 15, 2016, when um, we really don't know what happened that night, but clearly there was an attempt at overthrowing the government, and it was the number of troops who were out in the streets that night were minimal. We don't know if the government... We know that the government knew in advance of, uh, that the coup was coming, but we don't exactly know what the government did in terms of convincing some of the units not to participate. And so maybe the coup was, super, was going to be bigger and it fizzled out. But Erdogan used the coup essentially to help consolidate power by uh, cleansing the military, the bureaucracy, the universities, the press, you name the institution of anybody who is potentially an opponent of him. And then that story kind of pulled you in as well, right? I should hasten to add, you had nothing to do with planning the coup, um, <laughs> but but you did have something to do with the story after the fact. They kind of pulled you in. Can you tell us uh, about that? Well, I happened to be in Istanbul, actually on an island just outside Istanbul, um, that night, I had organized a, a workshop on. Um, I was at the Wilson Center then. I was a workshop on the JCPOA, the reaction of the region. I mean, the countries in the Middle East to JCPOA one year after its signing. So I brought in people from from Europe, from the Middle East, also from the United States, but and decided to do it in Istanbul because it's it's a wonderful place to have a conference and it's also a place where um, it was easy for people to get in. And so the coup happened uh, the first night of our, our, of our workshop. But when it fizzled, we decided to go ahead. And we were also in an island far away, not, not immediately in Istanbul, an hour away. And so we continued. But after I got back to Washington a few days later, the Turkish press started to come up with these incredible stories of how I was there to organize the coup, that I was one of the masterminds of the coup. And since then, they have issued an arrest warrant. Uh, so there is, you know, I'm technically, if I, when I travel, or certainly I don't go to Turkey, but even in some places, there's potential of legal jeopardy. It's complete fiction, it's, but it is part and parcel of the accusations that the Turks hold at, at anybody they think is a critic. In my case, it was really because I was a former U.S. government official, and they wanted to, to connect the U.S. government to the coup, and I happened to be the convenient excuse. I mean, had there been somebody far more senior than me vacationing in Turkey that night, they would have uh, <laughs> that person, and it just happened that they also saw me as a critic of Turkish policy. But the other thing I wanted to say, which is important in terms of the military, it's not just a coup of 2016 that's very important. It's also the the last time the military intervened, tried to intervene in 
in politics was in 2007, where they tried to block the ascension of <clears throat> Erdogan's confidant and, and number two in the party, or uh, and actually one of the co-founders of the party, Abdullah Gül, who was then foreign minister, from becoming from becoming the president of Turkey, and the military decided that Abdullah Gül should not become president of Turkey because his wife covers her head, and the idea that a woman with a head covering would be sleeping in Atatürk's bed, Atatürk being the founder of Turkey, modern and secular Turkey, was too much, and they issued an ultimatum, and Erdogan and Gül called their bluff, went for elections, and they came back with an overwhelming victory. In effect, what meant was that the Turkish public basically said, we trust Erdogan more than we trust the Turkish military, and that was the end of the Turkish military's, shall we say, power over, over the Turkish political system, which actually was a very good development in some ways, but it also upset the balances in Turkey, it weakened um, other sources of, uh, shall we say, opposition to to Erdogan. And from that point, from 2007 onwards, you see the increasing authoritarianism of Erdogan because he no longer fears the military. And when the military does try to do something in 2016, he defeats it rather, rather easily. Now, we don't know exactly how many officers were involved in 2016. Uh, in 2007, when they, they issued an ultimatum, the ultimatum came from the high command, from the top generals. In 2016, we don't know if it was um, lower-ranking officers, but Erdogan used that to essentially purge the military of all the senior officers that he thought would, did not like him or were pro-Western, etc., but anyway, so the saga is essentially a two-act saga in the sense that the ascendancy of Erdogan as a, as a democratizing, liberalizing reformist who then becomes, uh, once he has no, shall we say, um, real opponents left in the country, becomes more and more authoritarian. In other words, what I'm saying is that one, he feels... He filled, the, the political gap, uh, that is to say, as opposition against him fizzled, he just assumed more and more power. If Turkey had a democratic opposition in parliament that was worth its name and challenged him effectively, we would not be maybe in this position today. But this is history now. Now, with the stage set so effectively, I think it's time to pivot to the financial crisis that Turkey is facing today. And a lot of those problems are tied to its central bank. Normally, when an economy is uh, overheating, as the finance folks say, when, when rapid inflation is imminent, a country's central bank would raise interest rates. But that's not happening in Turkey. Why not? Well, I mean, at the beginning of Erdogan's rule, um, and until, I would say, recent years, he, he had it on him uh, professionals, people in the financial realm who gave him economic and financial advice. These were all recognized, well-educated um, uh, people whom he listened to. But as he became more authoritarian, he started to eliminate 
these folks and replace them with with hacks or people who essentially do not have the the political gumption or the political wherewithal um, to to resist him. As you know, the current crisis, which is essentially a crisis that was in the making for a while, it did not originate last week or, or a few months ago. Uh, the Turkish economy grew very, very rapidly, mostly on uh, on borrowed money, and money borrowed abroad in, in foreign exchange. But as the Turkish inflation started to increase, you know, the central bank was expected, and it, for a little while it did, Increase interest rates, but now it has stopped, and it has stopped because in, in you can go to the June 24 elections of this year when Erdogan kind of put the final touches on his personalistic, illiberal, one-man uh, regime, where all institutions of the state and many in the civil society were became uh, came under his control. Among them is the central bank. Erdogan does not believe that you com- you fight inflation with high interest rates. I mean, the orthodox um, solution in a capitalist system uh, is, if, as you said, if you have inflation, you increase interest rates, and you and you you essentially reduce economic activity. I mean, Turkey grew by 7.4 percent last year. Um, and Erdogan wants to continue this very high growth rate, even if this high growth rate is not all productive growth. It's mostly speculation, mostly uh, building both infrastructural and, and private construction. Um, but, but Erdogan thinks that high interest rates cause inflation and not vice versa. So that's his deeply, deeply, deeply committed to this idea. And today there's nobody in the government who can challenge him. Let's talk about the Turkey-Israel relationship. Once it was quite good, reflective in many ways of the kind of status Turkey had as a Muslim country, a secular Muslim country that was bridging Europe and the Middle East. Where does that Turkey-Israel relationship stand today? Well, that relationship is in the doldrums. I mean, the, the, the Turkish-Israeli relationship, but it is not just the Turks' fault. I mean, it's the Israelis' fault as well. I mean, they, um, I mean, the, the Israelis made a number of mistakes. Plus, uh, you have to understand that in in Turkey, there's a great deal of sympathy for the Palestinian plight and and Israeli action in the West Bank and Gaza, uh, especially the way it gets reported in Turkey. Um, uh, inflames passions, I mean, they generally, and for a, a, a Turkish government whose roots are in the Islamist movement, and and I should remind you listeners that Erdogan comes from a party uh, originally that was created by a, a real Islamic stalwart called Nejmet Nebakan, whose real great passion was uh, anti being anti-Israeli, anti-American. So Erdogan comes from that tradition, but he also did a great deal to improve relations with Israel at the beginning. Um, that was also his way of signaling to the rest of the world that he was not a traditional Islamist. But uh, but then, look, there was the incident of Mavi Marmara when a Turkish uh, uh, ship that was supposed to bring uh, humanitarian goods to the Palestinians was boarded by Israeli commandos and 10 people died. I mean, 
the ship's action may have been illegal by Israeli uh, law and, and, and embargo on Gaza, but uh, for, uh, for Israeli, Israeli commanders to board the ship and kill 10 civilians was actually a huge, humongous mistake. Um, and that completely jeopardized the relations between two. But the irony, of course, is that despite all of this, that there is a very important economic and commercial relationship between the two countries. As much as the Turks rail against Israel on a daily basis, um, Iraqi Kurdish oil gets pumped from Kurdistan in, in Iraq through Turkey, then goes on, puts on a, it gets put on a ship and goes to, to, to Israel. That's one. There are, I think, I, I forget how many now, I had, I had seen the number, like 18 or 19 flights a day between Turkey and Israel. I mean, Israeli tourists go to Turkey, Israelis travel through Turkey. Um, uh, so there is a very vibrant commercial relationship. And, you know, the two countries essentially... Um, have have made this kind of bizarre Faustian deal, if you want, uh, where the Turks attack and accuse and do all kinds of things, um, but the Israelis have taken no action against uh, these economic interests that in some ways benefit the Turks probably more than they benefit the Israelis. Um, so, so there is kind of this unwritten understanding between the two countries, and I suspect it will continue like this for a while to come. Now, my great-grandparents come from Izmir, Turkey, which is on the Aegean coast of Turkey. You have more recent Turkish-Jewish roots. With Erdogan stepping up his rhetoric, consolidating his power, lambasting Israel, what's the mood in Turkey's Jewish community? Well, I mean, I mean, first of all, I should confess that ever since my troubles with the Turkish government, since I have not traveled to Turkey, so I, my information is not, in that sense, reliable because I haven't talked to people and I and I kind of also avoid uh, talking to people because connection would be, you know... It, it would endanger your friends and relatives. It would also endanger yeah. people unnecessarily. But I do know that there's been a great deal of exodus, and the Turkish Jewish community is getting smaller. It was, I mean, there was this trend of um, Turkish Jews leaving for, whether it's Europe, the United States, or Israel, uh, and there was this trend, but now it has accelerated. Um, but there are also a lot of Turkish Jews who... Um, who remain and you know are doing fairly well economically uh, and con- continue to to look, especially after the 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 Republic Turkey was never a very hospitable place for for Jews. It's just that Jews learn how to uh, survive and keep their heads down and and uh, and kind of flourish intellectually. Uh, uh, Artistically and especially, and also especially in business, and those who wanted to leave, like myself, uh, left. But you know, it's just like the relationship with Israel. I mean, you make you know those who stay um, make a, a, a pact of some sort, and if the pressure gets, you know, every single person has a different um, tolerance level, right? And if the government 
uh, in Turkey continues in this part of the tolerance level, you know, they will, more people will leave um, if they reduce the, the intensity of the attacks. But look, even the main opposition party was supposed to be secular. One of its two leaders the other day made an outrageous statement about Jews, and he had, I mean, at least he had the decency to apologize afterwards. Uh, but but every day, every day, you read the Turkish newspapers, which are now 95% controlled by the government. You read one calumny against Jews after another. I mean, um, it's it's nonstop, and <clears throat> at some point, you know, uh, people will. If if you're politically uh, conscious, at some point you will um, you will decide that you can't live there. I made that decision when I was very young, many years ago. But you know, different people will make it at different points. Ori, my last question regards the future, not of the Turkish-Israel relationship, but of the Turkish-U.S. relationship. President Erdogan is talking about how the answer to their financial crisis is to boycott U.S. goods. There's a lot of anti-American sentiment floating around Turkey today. What comes next? Are these tensions going to go away or or only heighten? Well, there are two sets of issues at the moment, and they are somewhat unrelated, but one is structural and uh, one is, I would say, solvable. Now, if you, the reason President Trump has railed against uh, Erdogan and Turkey recently is because the Turks have detained this, um, this American evangelical pastor called Andrew Brunson, um, uh, by the way, who had a church in Izmir, and uh, they've kept him for two years in prison on the really outrageous charges, like the charges they brought against Americans and myself after the coup, that he was involved in the coup, that he talked to Fethullah Gulen, the main uh, opponent of, of Erdogan, who happened to live in Pennsylvania, or that he was in bed with the Kurdish Workers Party, which is the main insurgent group, Kurdish insurgent group in Turkey. So, but they, they I mean, when you look at the, you look at the indictment, it, 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 it's just this amazing fanciful conspiracy. There are also um, three Turkish citizens who are employees of the American embassy or consulate in in, in Turkey. These are people who are called foreign service nationals. They also have, two of them are in jail, one is under house arrest. In fact, one of them, I've known him for more than 20 years, is this wonderful human being and who worked for the U.S. government for 37 years and he's been in jail for a year and a half, again, under these outrageous, uh, unsubstantiated charges. So the fact that these people have been in detention for this long without real recourse to justice uh, and the fact that there is a perception in the United States that Turkey is using, uh, as it has used Europeans, as hostages because the Turks want certain things from us. And and you saw it because Erdogan and Trump made a deal for the release of uh, the, the pastor Brunson until the Turks reneged at the last minute, infuriating Trump, and Trump then lashed out by increasing tariffs on steel and aluminum imports from Turkey, but also tweeting in his usual manner against the Turkish lira, trying to push the Turkish lira down, and which, explained, which also explains why Erdogan blames 
the current crisis on Trump in the United States. But that's self-consolable because clearly the deal between Erdogan and, and, and Trump was really an exchange and um, a, a negotiation. But there are also far bigger issues that are more difficult to solve. One is directly the uh, United States collaboration with Syrian Kurds in, in Syria against ISIS. And, and the Turks are really wild about this because the Kurds in Syria are closely associated with the PKK, the, that Kurdish insurgent group I mentioned earlier. And so to them, the Syrians are an extension of the PKK, therefore they are terrorists, and the United States aligned itself with terrorists who are working against Turkey, even though it's true, the Syrian Kurds have a very close association with the PKK, but they are fighting a different fight in Syria. And there are Kurds in Syria, Iraq, Iran, and Turkey, and and the Kurds in these countries want certain rights. So, but we are aligned with them, and this started under Obama uh, in 2014. We are aligned with the Syrian Kurds, not because we like the Syrian Kurds, but because they are the only effective force that has managed to defeat ISIS. And... Um, so it is, if we all want ISIS to come back, both in Syria and Iraq, we need that collaboration. So that's one of the main sore points. The other one is the Turkish decision to buy S-400 missiles, anti-aircraft missiles from Russia. Now, Turkey is a NATO country. Turkey is going to come into possession of the latest uh, American fighter and this is a, a fighter that the F-35, which is top of the line, and it's a consortium of countries that is building it. And the Turks are in the have a share in that in that in the building. The problem for the United States, and especially for people on the Hill, is that the S-400s, because it's a Russian system, because there will be Russian technicians, because the Russians will have access to to the S-400s for maintenance and everything else. The S-400s will be able to discern, will be able to glean some of the secrets of the F-35s. Because imagine, let's say the the S-400s are put around Ankara. Any any F-35 that flies within 100 miles of of those missiles will be tracked by those those missiles, and the, the Russians will learn, you know, the signature of the F-35s and so on and so forth. So. Congress has now passed and the president has signed an authorization bill for the Pentagon that says if the Turks buy the S-400s, the United States will not deliver the, any F-35s to Turkey. And this is now becoming actually a, a major issue of contention. And the Russians, by the way, yesterday announced that, oh, by the way, we are going to deliver the, the missiles on time the first time I've seen the Russians produce something on time, deliver something on time, to <laughs> Turkey in 2019. So very soon, within a year probably, the, the Russians are saying, we'll deliver you the, uh, the S-400s, which the Turks have to pay cash for. And um, so the crisis between the two countries is coming to a head on this issue. And here is, you know, um, it's not clear what President Trump thinks, um, but and and the Pentagon would like to see a deal with with the Turks on this issue, but Congress is very very adamant on, on this particular issue, and it's going to be very.
very hard for the White House to kind of, uh, I suspect, um, overrule Congress. These are two, just two of the, the issues. Now, there is um, the Turks also continuously complain about the fact that Fethullah Gülen, whom they blame for organizing the coup in 2016, uh, is in Wisconsin, lives uh, in, in Pennsylvania, and they want him extradited. And uh, here the issue is that if the Turks keep sending, um, shall we say, information and, and, and documents which in their mind um, proves, um, proves the, the complicity of, of Fethullah Gülen. Henri, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your expertise. Okay, thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Ben Kingsley. Good for the Jews? Look, with the exception of Mel Gibson, most famous actors are probably good for the Jews. It's an old anti-Semitic trope to say that the Jews control Hollywood, but I think it's fair to note that Jews aren't exactly underrepresented in cinema. But Ben Kingsley, talented as he is, isn't a Jewish actor, so why is he good for the Jews? Well, if you're like me, you're getting excited to watch Operation Finale, starring Ben Kingsley as Adolf Eichmann, the architect of the Nazis' final solution, and Oscar Isaac as the Mossad agent tasked with capturing him in Argentina and bringing him to Israel to stand trial. So new? What makes a Goyesha Brit playing a Nazi good for the Jews? Well, Kingsley has a long history of Holocaust roles, having portrayed Nazi hunter Simon Wiesenthal, Otto Frank, father of Anne, and the Jewish accountant Itzhak Stern in Schindler's List. Over the course of his career, he met and befriended Elie Wiesel. Shortly before Wiesel died in 2016, Kingsley promised him, quote, The next time I walk onto a film set that is appropriate to your story, I will dedicate my performance to you. And with Operation Finale, he has done so, carrying a picture of Ellie with him in his pocket throughout filming. A good man playing an evil one, remembering a great one. I sincerely hope that Operation Finale will turn out to be a good movie, but I am sure that Ben Kingsley is good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at ajc.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.